Second Samuel 5. Looking at the life of David. While you're turning there, I'll give you just a quick review of his life thus far. Uh, really, the first 30 years of his life, David's been in the desert. Uh, first, as a shepherd. That's where the shepherd shepherds the sheep. And he's there as the least of Jesse's sons. The forgotten one. The forsaken one. It's desert time in David's life. And then he leaves the flock one day. And, and the desert to take on Goliath. And immediately he has to go back to the desert. This time to run for his life from Saul. Just spent three um, wonderful days in that desert. The Judah desert. It's... Uh, it's just quite a place. Every time I take a group there, that, that is the place that they remember the most. It's, it's so hot. It's, it's so intense. Uh, it takes your breath away. It makes you feel your vulnerability in ways that you normally don't feel vulnerable. If you kind of think you're okay and everything's going to be okay, just stay there for a few more hours and it won't be okay. Um, that's the place where God shapes and molds his people. And this chapter in David's life, this chapter of desert, hurtful in so many ways, painful. It is the most beautiful chapter in David's life as well. Because it's, it's in this place where God molds David into a man after his own heart. And I say this this morning as, as way of review because we're going to see right now that David is a long way from the desert, uh, but some of you are there. And I'm, I'm not saying that you're supposed to like it. I'm not saying you're supposed to enjoy it. I'm not saying that, that it's not hard and difficult, but there is an opportunity to be seized when our life is in the desert, when we are dealing with things that we don't have control over, where we feel incredibly vulnerable, where we feel weak, that there is an opportunity for us to meet the God of the universe and to have him mold and shape us into people after his own heart. That's the desert. Well, we come to uh, 1 Samuel 5, and David, as you see, is a long way from the desert. Let's stand and read uh, this text. And all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, I want you to just think about that. All the tribes, all of them, come to David and say, we are your own flesh and blood. We are your family. In the past, while Saul was king over us, we knew what was going on. You were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And then when all the elders of Israel had come to David, David at, to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. He reigned 40 years. And in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, which is where he moved his capital, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. This is God's word. You can be seated for now. David has just been coronated king. 
He's top dog. He's no longer just king in theory or in name, but he is the king. In fact, verse 1, as I highlighted, all of Israel come to him and they say, hey, we are your flesh and blood. Verse 3, the elders, which would be the equivalent of their Congress and their Senate and their Supreme Court, all of them come to David and they make this covenant and then coronate him. They crown him the king. Now, one thing I want us to think about is just how long David had to wait for this moment. He's probably about 16 or 17 years when Samuel comes to the house and and anoints David as king. He is now 30 years old. In other words, he's had to wait 13 or 14 years, desert years, years where he didn't know if he was going to be alive the next day. He had to wait. There's a takeaway for us here. Because we don't like to wait. I mean, just look at people in grocery lines. Look at me in traffic. (laughs) I'm bad. I'll I'll admit it. I'm not not a, a, a good Christian all the time in traffic. I mean, waiting is, is, is very un-American. I hate to say this about my kids, but they're not here this morning, so I will. Um, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times it's come out of my mouth just when they're, they're saying something where they're demanding something in the moment. And, and I'll just say, you have no idea how long I had to wait when I was a kid for that thing. Parents, I know you're saying it all the time, right? And here's what we've done is we've taken this American value of not being able to wait. And I think we've even applied this whole value to God. And then we've labeled that spiritual. In fact, I'm noticing that there is a a dangerous spirituality that's creeping up in the church today that says... If, if you can master the right kind of spirituality or, or, or master the right kind of spiritual technique, you're going to get. You're going to get what you want. You're going to get the miracle. You're, you're, you're going to get the thing that you asked for. And, and so with this spirituality, the true measure of faith is, is getting. But when you look at biblical faith, biblical faith is not born out of getting Uh, the true measure of biblical faith is actually when we don't get. When we have to wait. Think about Abraham and Sarah, how long they had to wait. Think about Jacob, how long Jacob had to wait for the fulfillment of, of God's promises. Think about the biblical story, how long the story and the people of God in the story had to wait for Messiah. Think about our world, the world that God has made and how it waits and it groans as a woman in labor for God to come again and make it all right. Waiting is what we're called to do. It's, it, it's the true measure of faith. In fact, uh, the New Testament says the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. 
And the problem with the word patient that I just uh, said is actually in the original language, that's a bad translation of the word. And some of your translations have the right translation. It it actually should be the word long-suffering. And long-suffering is exactly what you think it is. It's, It's having this capacity to suffer. That when we're in the ring and life is, is beating us up, that we don't just, at the first blow, just tap out. How well can you wait? How long can you suffer? How, do you have the capacity to, to wait and to suffer for a long time? It's, it's one of the great disservices I feel like we are doing today with our kids uh, the moment that our kids have a little bit of uphill in their life or they get in a little bit of trouble or there's a bullying at, bully at school bullying them, it's mom and dad to the rescue. I fought the bully. I beat the bully up. <laughs> I got a broken arm. <laughs> But listen to David uh, in, throughout the Psalms. David is this guy who in the desert, by the way, the desert is where David wrote most of his Psalms. Uh, Psalm 27, David says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. But I will wait for the Lord and I will be strong and take heart. I will wait. I will wait for the Lord. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me, heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire. He put my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand in a new song in my heart. I waited patiently, says David. Psalm 38, he says, those who want to kill me, they set their traps. And those who would harm me talk about my ruin all day long. They scheme and they lie. And I am like the deaf who cannot hear and the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. I'm weak, but Lord, I wait for you. And you will answer me, O Lord my God. Or Isaiah 40. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. The Lord is the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can really fathom Because he gives strength to the weary, he increases the power of the weak. Even young people grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait, who can wait upon the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Does that describe you? Does that describe us? I want it to be a description of this church. That we are a people who know how to wait. Long suffer. Suffer long. Have the capacity to suffer well and long trusting in God. That's just a little sidebar in the text. David's king. Not only is he king, but if you have an NIV Bible like mine, you have subtitles in your Bibles. Just look at the subtitles of chapter 5. I mean, it begins with David becomes king over Israel. Next subtitle is David conquers Jerusalem. 
Next subtitle is David defeats the Philistines. I want us to just feel uh, what's going on in, in, in the story because Israel has now been in the promised land for 400 years and they're still Philistines. And not only are there Philistines, but these Philistines have literally relegated the people of God to the hill country where it's like circle the wagons and let's keep those bad people out. And what's so tragic about this is that Israel needs to occupy the whole land to fulfill the mission that God has given to them. Not just hide up in the hills. And so the first thing that you read after David is anointed king is he finally takes the most important city in the land, a city that happens to be right in the heart of the hill country in Judah. We know it as Jerusalem. For 400 years, this city has been a stronghold of the Canaanites. In fact, they make such a mockery out of the Israelites, they they put their their blind and the lame on the walls uh, to say, that's all we need to defend this city, Israel. You guys are way too weak. But look at verses 6 and 7. We didn't read this, but it says the king... That's how David is now called. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to, to attack the Jebusites, the Canaanites who lived there. And the Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can uh, defend us. David, nevertheless, captured the fortress of Zion. Zion, by the way, is another name for Jerusalem. And Zion just means the highest hill or the highest place in Jerusalem which also then is called the city of David, another word for Jerusalem. Now what I want us to know this morning is that Jerusalem is more than just a place on the map, but Jerusalem becomes central to the whole biblical story. Jerusalem is called the city of God. Sometimes it's called Zion. Sometimes it's called the hill of the Lord. In fact, uh, this, this hill to this day in Jerusalem, you could get in a taxi and say, can you take me to Har Habit, which means the house on the hill, and they'll take you right to that special hill in that special city. The house on the hill, Har Habit. Because this is where God in the biblical story is going to dwell. This is where he's going to put his home. This is no just ordinary hill. This is the hill of of, of the Lord or the Lord's hill. That Psalm 24 says, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may make aliyah to the Lord's hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then when you think about this hill and the whole biblical story... In fact, uh, some Jewish theologians to this day believe that God created the whole world from this hill. It's from this hill where God laid the the, the foundation stone for uh, the whole world. In Jesus' day, uh, they also had a place on this hill called the place of the skull. Because it was Skull Hill. It was the hill where, where Adam, when he died, where he was buried. And how ironic... Do the gospel writers pick up on that and say this is where God put his cross and his king on that very spot? 
The first story in the Bible uh, related to Jerusalem is, is, is with Abraham when he's returning after he defeated the four kings from the east with his mighty men. And it says that there's this king that comes out from this city to meet with Abraham. And you're wondering who this mysterious king is until you go to uh, Hebrews 7. And Hebrews 7 basically tells us who this mysterious king is. It's Christ. It's pre-incarnate Christ. And I love this. I love to think about this. That right at the beginning of the story, you have the great Abraham coming face to face with the king of righteousness. And it says Abraham bowed and he worshipped him. And he tithed them. And it says that this king served Abraham a supper of wine and bread. It's awesome. And then later God is going to call Abraham to walk to the highest point of this city. Uh, Zion is, is, is the place. Today it's called Moriah. Hey Abraham. Take your son whom you love, Isaac, and walk to Zion, to this city, and offer your son there as a sacrifice to me. In fact, I, I, you guys know the story as, as Abraham and Isaac are making this three-day journey to Zion. Isaac's going to ask him, he's going to say, hey, Dad, you know, we have everything for the sacrifice, the wood and the knife, but where's the lamb? And, and Abraham looks at his son and says something very profound. He says, the Lord will provide. The word there is Jireh, which we get Jehovah Jireh. Uh, and, and literally, Jireh means to see. God will see to it, son. And then when God does provide in that moment where, where this lamb who replaces Isaac, that's exactly what Abraham says. Abraham says, on this mount... It will be, Jireh, provided the Lord will see to it. And just think about what happens then 2,000 years after Abraham, how, how, how God then provides. And, and that prefix, Jireh, is added to the ancient name Salem, which means shalom. And you put Jireh with, with Salem, and what do you have? Jerusalem. In fact, our, uh, I got a special tour of, of David's city, which is just a small part of Jerusalem today, where they're doing a lot of archaeology. It was a lot of fun. And my Jewish guide, uh, right at the beginning, uh, said, have you ever noticed? Well, you, she said, you probably don't notice this because you don't know Hebrew, but the Hebrew name for Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, she said, it's not plural. I know it's plural. That's what I was thinking. It's plural. And I've always thought, that's weird. Why, why is it called Jerusalems? Because that's how it is in the Hebrew. She said, it's actually not plural. It's, we have a special ending for when there's a pair, too. And she said, because Jews to this day believe that when Messiah comes, he is going to unite the two Jerusalems, the spiritual Jerusalem. He's going to bring it and unite it with the earthly Jerusalem. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? That's how my Bible ends. And that's our hope as Christians. Our hope is in Jerusalem that God one day is going to bring 
uh, from heaven, his, his holy city, the new Jerusalem, and it's going to be united with this world, and it's going to unite heaven and earth, and there's going to be no mourning, no crying, no pain, no sickness, no curse. And so this city is just at the heart of, of the whole biblical story. David next defeats Philistines. Not only has he conquered Jerusalem, but he defeats the Philistines. In fact, look at verse 25 of chapter 5. We didn't read this verse either. It's the last verse of the chapter. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. I loved it. I just, uh, Aaron is in our our. our, our group that we study the text with on Tuesday, and he just got back from Israel. He just normally would have uh, read right over that, but now that he's been to Israel, Gezer's our first stop, and he's like, Gezer, Gezer, oh, Gezer. <laughs> and uh, what's the significance of Gezer? Well, if you know the geography, you now know that David is moving this people, Israel, from circling the wagons up into the hills where they're now entering the coastal plain. And on the coastal plain, the ancient world's most important road is there. And on this road, every people group travels it. A million people uh, a year. Egyptians, Persians, Babylonians, people from the north, south, east, and west all travel this road. And this gets right into the heart of Israel's mission. God didn't put his people in this world to circle the wagons and keep that world out. God's purpose from the beginning with his people, which includes us today, is that we would be God's people in God's place who are priesting God, putting God on display, showing the world what God is like to the whole world. And Israel gets to do this now. They have God's king who is now over God's people. And God's people, in fact, let me just show you what David does to uh, this nation. I have a couple of PowerPoints here. I know you can't see very clearly. The red, if you can see that in the middle, that's Saul's kingdom. And if you know the geography, those are just the mountain, that's just the mountain areas. They're just a people that are just hiding in the hills. The blue now is David expanding and, and, and taking uh, the land that God had promised. And now they can fulfill their mission as a people. In fact, uh, look at the next slide because now you're seeing Israel in light of the other nations. Israel's no longer a little mouse. David has made Israel into a great empire that's respected. And I want you right now in terms of the story to feel what's going on because the psalm that we looked at last week, Psalm 2, God has now set his king on his holy hill, Zion, and now God's people are being what God's people are supposed to be and the nations are their inheritance. And I am confident that people in, in David's day are like, God is, Messiah has come. 
The millennium is here. Until you look at verse 13. I want you to feel the devastation of this. Even when we were studying this this week in in our Tuesday night group, Dan Mike, who, uh, yes, Dan Mike with his perfect memory. I am not buying what he was selling last week. (laughs) Said, I just glossed right over it. We all did. We want to gloss over verse 13. We want to make light of verse 13. We want to almost act as if verse 13 isn't there. Can it please go away? This is David. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the one that God is using to now finally usher in his kingdom. And David took... Many mistresses. That's what a concubine is. He has been sowing these seeds for a while. These seeds are now taking root. And these seeds are not only going to be the seeds of David's destruction, David's family, family's destruction but it's going to lead to devastation to the whole nation. The seeds of lust have taken root in David's heart. I hear so many people today who say, you know, beware of the desert. Avoid suffering at all costs as if that's the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody. Uh Uh-uh. That's not how the Bible teaches about desert. And that's not how the Bible teaches about prosperity. The Bible says, beware of prosperity. Beware when, when everything goes well in your life and, and life is good and you start rising to the top and you start to get things and have things and experience comfort and you get to indulge in more than you ever have. The Bible says be careful. I think one of the most depressing passages in the whole Bible is Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy is, is, is written by Moses, written by God through Moses to God's people in the 39th year of their wilderness wanderings to prepare them to enter the promised land. And Deuteronomy 8 is where God says, don't forget about the desert. Don't forget about this place where I led you, where I was with you, where your sandals didn't even wear out, where you had manna rain down from heaven. You had nothing to worry about. He said, you're going into a land 
a good land as an Eden good, flowing with milk and honey. There are going to be houses there you didn't build. There's going to be vineyards there you didn't plant. There's going to be wells there that you didn't dig. And God says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to forget me. Your life is going to get really good. It's going to get really comfortable as you're in promised land. You're going to forget me. You're going to forsake me. And on top of that, you're going to look at everything that you have, everything that, that, that I have given you, and you're going to say, my hands did this. I built that house. I got that job. I scored the winning goal. I did it. You know what's so tragic about this? Not only does God warn them that it's going to happen, but then, sure enough, this is the story of the people of God over and over again, is their life, once it becomes prosperous, boom! They become morally and spiritually bankrupt. Hey, let's wear that shoe. Look at our country today. We are morally and spiritually bankrupt. Do you think prosperity and comfort and indulgence has anything to do with it? I look at my own life. I don't even have to look at the life of David. I don't even have to look at the life of Israel. I don't have to look at our country. I can look at my own life. And I can see that when I'm in desert, I'm desperate. And when I'm not in desert, I start to grow confident. And I start to forget God. And here's the deal. It doesn't have to be this way. Whether we live in good times or or bad times, whether these are the best of times or the worst of times, uh, whether our life is up here or in the bottom, whether, whether we're in the crapper or we're on top, here's the deal. We are always desperate for God. Desperate. Desperate. Doug Tejas gave me a devotional years ago. And this is one of the reasons why I respect this man. And I believe this is one of the reasons to the secret of why this man is a godly man. You know what the devotional is called? Diary of a Desperate Man. And he gave it to me and he said, this is what I am. And it should help you. Do you know how desperate you are? Do you know how much you, 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 you need God? Every moment of every day, we need his presence, we need his righteousness, we need his word, we need his spirit. We need him. We need him. That's my first takeaway. I have one more. 
sin. And I'm going to call it sin and not brokenness because I understand that there's this growing trend in, in, in the American church to call sin brokenness. Brokenness is the result of sin. Sin is potent. It is potently destructive. Those aren't my words. That's the word of God. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, God will not be mocked. Whatever a person sows, also will they reap. And if you sow a life of sin, you will die. The prophets over and over again said, you choose to sin and you will die. James 1, 14 and 15. Does anyone have it memorized? Can someone stand and find it and read it? (laughs) I feel like I'm in Israel right now. I'm trying to find it. James, Peter, John. Here we go. Sorry, I did not have this one marked. But you get a little commercial time to just take a break. David didn't just one day morally and spiritually fall off a cliff. He sowed a small seed of lust and he begins then to add a woman here and a woman there and a woman over here. And and, and all of a sudden this seed now has taken root in his heart, in his life. In fact, six chapters from now, which is not six months from now in the story, but a a couple of decades, David is going to fall off the cliff morally and spiritually. He's going to do it with a woman named Bathsheba. And not only is he going to impregnate this woman who is married to another man, but he's going to also go into cover-up mode, and he's going to have her husband killed. And then he's going to stay in cover-up mode for, for, for a longer period of time. And I am utterly convinced that gross sin like this is never a sudden singular act. It's a process. It's a process of, of letting little seeds come into our life, come into our heart, that we think are inconsequential because they're just tiny little seeds. They're not going to take root, but then they do take root, and they, they grow, and they grow, and they grow. Lust is killing us today. Literally, it's killing us. And not just the lust leading to the perversion 
of the city of Grand Rapids, but our whole nation and all across the world. Lust and its seed has gone into people's hearts. And what it's produced is destruction. And you know, whether it's rape, sex trafficking, all the violations, lust. So is greed. This, this, this insatiable need that we have to have that next thing and, and, and to get a little bit more, whether it's more money or, or whether it's I, I have more beauty, I, I, I look better, whether it's more status, more clout, more leverage, more power. We are a greedy people. Gluttony. And gluttony is, is more than just Food, but we become just gluttons. We, 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 we stuff ourselves with anything and everything the world has to offer. And trust me, I'm preaching most to my own heart right now. And really, these things that I've just described, and you, you can describe more, they're, they're, they're really just the symptoms because we're still not talking about the sin that's underneath all sin. And, and, and we have to get to the root. And, and the root of all sin is the sin of self. It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of wanting to exalt ourselves and, and, and stuff ourselves and make life all about me, myself, and I. That's what's going on in David's heart. Lust is just the root. Having many mistresses is just the root. He has become a proud man. He is no longer a man after God's own heart. God's heart is my life for you. And David has become like every other politician there is. And you can say amen to that. It's your life for me. Don't think about politicians right now. What's God putting his finger on? See, we can try to justify these, 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 these seeds because I know God's spirit right now is speaking to your hearts. If your hearts are open, God's spirit is putting his finger on specific things right now in your life. And, and, and we can then start to kind of justify why those things in our life. We can start rationalizing them away. We can start sweeping them under the rug. We can, we can minimize all of these things. But I'm telling you, if we do that, it will lead to great devastation, not only in our own lives, but the lives of those around us. Or we can repent. We can repent. I just, we can repent. You guys, listen. This is something the Jewish people have taught me. Repentance to them is such a joy. It's not like we have to repent. It's like we get to repent. We get to look at the stuff in our lives and own it. And not say that was my false self that did that. No, you did it. And that's not some demon that made me do it. No, you did it. Own it. 
own it and, 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 and be able to look at it. Now, repentance is not just now as we own it, feeling great sorrow over it and guilt and shame. But listen, if you feel great sorrow, guilt and shame over it, good. What's wrong with guilt and shame? Guilt and shame are the the indicators in our life that say something's wrong and that wrong is me and stuff that I'm doing. It's helping us. So you take the guilt, you take the shame, you take all the stuff that you own and you leave it behind. You let go of it. You literally turn from it and you turn with all your heart to God. And here's why we can do it. We can repent not because we're so good. Are you kidding? We can repent because he's so good. He's so good. You guys, Jesus taught us. He's a father on a porch. His heart's just beating for us. He loves us. And when he sees us turn and come back, he runs to us. He throws his arms around us. He embraces us. And you know how I know this to be true? Because I'm a father. And my kids can frustrate me. I mean, they can really frustrate me. But the moment they ever say, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. All I want to do is hug them. Embrace them. And I do. And some of you so badly want to experience the love and grace of God, but you don't want to repent. But the way you experience the love and the mercy and the grace and the kiss of your father is you repent. And you got a brother, a big brother, who told us about his father and said, everything that you've done, I'm bearing it all. I lived the life you're supposed to live. I died the death that you deserve to die. It's on me. That's the king that we long for. That's the king that God gave us. So this morning, I don't know how you do it. But John prayed it. God's Fiercest anger and fiercest wrath is reserved for his people. He wants a people who are holy as he is holy. He wants a people who can put him on display by being like him, by having his heart and, and, and being, the, the, being God and God-like to the world. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent... I will heal, says the Lord. In Jesus' day, they had this called the baptism of repentance. God, I wash my hands because they did things these hands shouldn't have done. God, I wash my head, my mind. I thought things I never should have thought. God, I wash my heart. I've willed things and, 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 and had a heart for things I should not have. I've loved things I shouldn't have loved. God, I wash my feet. 
because now some of these things have become a path in my life. I repent. I give you all of my hands. I give you all of my thoughts. I give you all of my heart. And I give you my path. Because who may ascend his holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. God, may your people who are called by your name humble themselves and repent. Whatever you're putting your finger on this morning, God, may we have the guts to repent.